Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Born Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. He's going to sneak in the window. Watch you sleep. <laughs> he likes to sit there and watch you sleep. He's going to take his place right next to your mama who still sneaks in and watches you sleep at night. Too. Oh, have you read that book? Do you remember reading that children's book? <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't remember what it was called. It was the one where mom, it, she sneaks in. To, that was the most. <laughs> just Is that the one where she like rocks him to sleep as an adult? <laughs> she doesn't rock him to sleep, but she goes, sneaks into his room in the middle of the night and picks him up while he's sleeping and rocks him. It's t- it's terrible. It truly is. It's, most, it's really awful. The most horrifying <laughs> children's novel. Hi, this is this is what you should grow up to expect from your mother. She's going to sneak into your house your entire life and watch you while you sleep and fawn over you. They actually made that into a movie. It's called Ride. <laughs> we did the trailer last week. Very funny. Very funny. Um, I think I think that's a little a little more of an extreme <laughs> helicopter. I think there's a good horror film in there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. Oh, um, so uh, what 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 else is uh, what else is going on in your life? You feeling good? How's your kung fu? It's uh, it's full of fighting. It's full of kung fu fighting. Yeah, yeah. strong, fast as lightning. Fast as lightning. Mm-hmm. I have been in uh, Las Vegas this week. Yeah, how was how and, was the old Vegas? Oh my gosh, as Vegasy as that, ever. <laughs> that town is bananas. It's just crazy. It is right, it's a crazy town. Yes, I don't. I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know how one does it. 
Wang spends any time there. There was an interview, you know, and you, first of all, I was staying at the Aria and when you walk in, it's all, everything's like a smart room. So you walk in and all the lights fade up and the curtains open and the TV turns on to the Aria channel. Ooh. And yeah, it was, it was super fancy. And there's a, there's like a, a master remote next to the bed, kind of a picture frame remote and you tap it and you say, I want the alarm to come on at, you know, six in the morning and, and I want these things to happen. I want to, you know, I want the curtains to open, but only the blackout curtain. I don't want the sheer curtain to open. Uh, and I want that just because just I want the light and then I want the TV to come on, but I want it to play soft jazz. Like you can tell it to do all these things. It was just crazy. Wow. But the, the, the biggest thing. Which was that, the, you know, the Aria is really close to uh, the Bellagio, right? It's another kind of MGM sure. uh, kind of thing. And, and I hadn't, the last time I was in, in Las Vegas, it was before the Bellagio was around. I should say, I've been in Las Vegas bef- since then, but I didn't go down to the new strip mm-hmm. and see some of these new things. So I had never been to the Bellagio and I'd never actually seen the fountains. Mm. Uh, it, so my only experience with the fountains was um, Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> Ocean's Eleven. That's exactly where I'm going with this. Uh, so, I'm just... Have you seen it? Have you done the show? You've been down I've there? I've been there, yeah. Okay. Ocean's Eleven is full of horse pucky. <laughs> you, see, you see Brad Pitt and you see Clooney down there and they're just leaning up against the rail and they're all casually doing... People are just kind of... Just kind of leisurely walking by, and you hear da 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 da, da you know, and everything's great, so peaceful there. When I was there, there's ten thousand people, and we're all trying to dodge like guy dressed as Batman, guy dressed as Bumblebee, stripper cops, and <laughs> the guy hucking uh, two for one five dollar beers. Uh, it was insane. That's it was awesome. insane. They should have had that in Ocean's Eleven. It would have. Uh, That's what I'm saying. Let's. <laughs> much. I would love to see Clooney and and Pitt like dodging the Batman guy and like. No, I'm not going to give you a dollar to take my picture with you, Bumblebee. <laughs> I'm not going to do that right now. I came to see the lovely fountains. Did Bumblebee transform and drive off? No, he didn't. You know what? He he was a grocery cart. <laughs> Painted yellow with some plastic on it, and but his his eyes, the helmet was really quite authentic. That's. I mean, it wasn't you know, it wasn't it was giant. It, it wasn't was a, robot authentic. It wasn't robot authentic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's uh, that town is bananas. So thank you, uh, Las Vegas. I had a had a great uh, great trip. Spent most of my time really just in the area shooting this conference, which was uh, also uh, delightful. It's a lovely facility. Excellent. Um, yeah, lots of robot stuff. Mm. Robot curtains, robot light. Everything was robot. I want now. I came home and I want to like totally make my house smart. Do you remember um, Maximum Overdrive? <laughs> <laughs> Be careful the, what you the, wish for, Pete. <laughs> yeah, right. That <laughs> <laughs> was like the Stephen King uh, movie that he, yeah, the, the Stephen only King one he directed. One. Where exactly was it the spiritual sequel of Carrie, <laughs> where where all machines come to life? Like there's a meteor <laughs> or something and. The ATM machine is like refusing to give money to people, and it's like that's exactly what would happen. It's like even even the curtains would just like <laughs> just move to spite you. <laughs> I don't think I want to open right now. That's right. You will not get light or vitamin D. Tough. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from?
everybody. This is The Next Reel, and I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Yo! And we spoil movies tonight on the show, the second in our 2015 film noir series with 1945's Detour. Uh, but before we get into that, you should uh, learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you think you know the secrets of hitchhiking the open road, you head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. We'll see if you're as, as talented as our winner this week. Andy, how did we do against the murder of misfits? It was a pretty good week this week. It was, you know, something that is familiar to uh, anyone who's been following the show for a while. It was like, was this our first? Was When Harry Met Sally our first uh, New Year's film? I think so. I think it was. While you talk, I'm going to look it up. Yeah, figure that out. But yeah, it was When Harry Met Sally, uh, an absolutely fantastic uh, romantic comedy that uh, spans, uh, you know, the love story of these two. And... It was kind of a, a good race. It was the fourth image in, and it ended up being like a, a neck-and-neck finish between Jenny Level and uh, Mr. Tilkfist. And they came in, it must have been fragment of a second uh, apart, and Jenny Level pulled ahead just seconds. Actually, uh, I think it was about 25 seconds, but I like, th- I like thinking that it was just a fragment of a second. Ahead. 20, you, t- wait, wait. You like to think, but are you serious? It was twenty-five seconds. Twenty-five seconds before uh, Mr. Til- Tilkfist, uh, Jenny Level, uh, pulled in with one hair. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he probably didn't even see it on his display. He typed it in and and hit enter, and then hers was already right there before him. Have we have we ever had a, a a photo finish like this? I don't know. I don't think so. I think this might be the first photo finish that we've had. That is so cool. Yeah. Uh, and yes, I will confirm this. This uh, we did when Harry met Salary. Jan- when Harry met Salary, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Harry met Salary, uh, January six, two thousand twelve. So that would be our first. That was our very first uh, New Year's show. Excellent, excellent. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, Jenny Level, she uh, she did nail it on image four, just ahead of Mister Tilkfist. Like I said, so she mm-hmm. is entered to win the twenty fifteen Pony Prize. Jenny hasn't. Uh, she hasn't won in a while, right? I don't think so. It's been a little while. I think it has. All right. I think um, I think it's time for us, Andy. Let's let's do those trailers. Let's do it. I'm gonna go first. I'm totally gonna go first. <laughs> As well, you should, <laughs> Andy. So here's the thing: the TV show Mission Impossible. Uh huh. It ran, you know, through the late '60s through uh, 1972. I think it was in that. So I was, I was a a young man in those days, very young, like poop my pants without regret, young. <laughs> and and I have it on some authority uh, that my father used to prop me up uh, with him in my infant days, and we would watch Mission Impossible together while he would eat barbecue bologna sandwiches and Cheetos and Coke. So mm. that that's how long I have I have had a connection to this franchise. This my connection runs deep to this franchise. I, that I'm, is why I'm sorry I'm stuck on the the diet here. <laughs> no, it was not good. And I should add, uh, it was also they were made on just strictly as as blanched white bread as as you oh, could find. Sure. And and barbecue, you take the bologna, the slices of the round slices of bologna. This is 
this is good. And you fry it in barbecue sauce and you put it on and you don't put anything else on. It's just essentially bread. It's awful. Why would anybody do that to their to to their body? But that was a thing in my family. And so I have a connection to barbecue bologna sandwiches and now Mission Impossible. Those things are, are tied together. That's fantastic. And uh, that's why I am pretty thrilled that we finally have a trailer that dropped this week for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. The IMF is uniquely trained and highly motivated. Specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures. But it is an agency of chaos. The time has come to dissolve the IMF. Now I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? Last I heard he was tracking the syndicate. The whole gang is back together in this film. Right? Yeah. Uh, Tom Cruise... Jeremy Renner, Simon Pegg, uh, even uh, Ving Rhames is is back in this thing. Yeah, uh, he's I think been in almost. Has he been in all of them? He though? was no, he has not been in all of them. Most? He was well. I take it back. Maybe he you could count that he was in one of them where he wasn't actually in it, but he showed up at the restaurant drinking a beer with with yeah, that Ethan was, Hunt that at was the three, end, right? That sort of counts, but not really. Yeah, he they you know he didn't go on any missions. He didn't do a mission. You're right. It was a walk-on. It wasn't a thing. But now he's back. He's back. He's a, he's a real thing. Um, uh, but Alec Baldwin joins the cast uh, of this one. And uh, Rebecca Ferguson, I guess, is playing the um, uh, the very kick-buddy uh, female lead on this thing. She's, she looks tough. I don't know. This trailer, man, they, they hit hard in this trailer. So I'm very, very excited about it. Um, I have heard I, I heard nothing about it, nothing at all. I mean, I I knew that they were that there was a script. Like that's as far as I as I got, and and I feel like I only just discovered that a few weeks ago. And then Tom Cruise, somebody retweeted Tom Cruise on uh, his his Twitter feed, and his tweet was "Light the fuse." I thought, well, wow, they must they must be about to start shooting. And two days later, the trailer dropped. <laughs> so that was a very short shoot. <laughs> and filmmaking has has gotten very very efficient. That's right. It's all done uh, live. <laughs> it's all done live. This one hits uh, July thirty first, two thousand fifteen. What do you think? Are you in for Rogue Nation? Oh, IMAX, hundred percent. Atmos, hundred and ten percent. I'm so excited. As you know, I did my big Tom Cruise marathon uh, yeah. last year, and uh, yeah, I mean, I love the last three Mission Impossible films. I, I think that they're great. Um, I mean, the last two Mission Impossible films. I'm pre-loving this one. I guess I was including this in my love. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Um, it just looks it looks so good. <laughs> I I love the uh, I love the airplane thing. Yes, uh, open the door, open the door, and he doesn't open the door, and that is even the poster of Tom Cruise hanging off of the side of this airplane as it takes off into the air. And I guess you missed it. I saw a video of him hanging out the side of a plane that was posted online like two months ago or so when they were filming. Like somebody actually was filming Tom Cruise, crazy Tom Cruise, actually doing this stunt where he actually was hanging off the side of an airplane as it took off and they filmed the scene. And somebody oh. filmed it with their phone and you could see this little dot of Tom Cruise on the side of this plane as it actually took off. And I was like, I cannot believe that man. He is flipping insane. But that is 
awesome. It makes me want to see it all the more. I'm super excited. This one, I will say, there's so much stuff going on in the trailer. This one, uh, maybe more than any of the others, I really felt like this really was an impossible mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I t- I'm I'm right with you, and I'm so I'm I'm pretty excited about uh, Tom Cruise right now, and I think I have been excited about Tom Cruise for for several years. I mean, with the exception of Rock of Ages, uh, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, 2011, Jack Reacher, 2012. I'm on the record. I like that. Uh, I like that film a lot. Oblivion. I also liked quite a bit. I know I, I know I stand with fewer. I like it too. Uh, on on like that. Edge of Tomorrow, I think we both are on the record, is quite liking Edge of Tomorrow. Then we've got Rogue Nation. And are you kidding? That's 2015. Top Gun 2 and then Jack Reacher never go back. Oh, yeah. I, I'm okay with him diving back into the well on those films. And I, I really am. And I would jump back. I mean, Night and Day, it was fun. It wasn't that great. Um, but Valkyrie, I was actually quite impressed with Valkyrie. I thought that was You're right. solid. It, you're right. It was. And even before that, Tropic Thunder. Yeah. That's just one of <laughs> That's just... <laughs> That is a brilliant role. I'd love to see him reprise one day. Me too. Me too. So I he's he's on quite a run. This is he is doing the movies that this he just needs to do right now. I love these movies so much. I'm absolutely okay uh, with uh, giving my money to the cinema in exchange for the value that I get from Tom Cruise. And here, here, I'm 110 mm-hmm. percent in agreement with you on this one. All right, July 31st. I think I'll actually be in uh, in New York. Mm. To find a way to see it in the woods. There you go. All right. How about you? My trailer is uh, a little little uh, um, uh, tamer than yours, I guess. I mean, it certainly still has some some interesting stuff going on in it, but it's not nearly as high octane as yours. But it looks really interesting. This is a new zombie film starring, of all people. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who clearly must have recently just watched Joe that Nicolas Cage was in, because he seems to be channeling that type of character. Dad, you've protected me all my life. Now it's my turn to protect you. There is life with you, not with me. Don't come looking for me. I'm safe. I'm fine. Normally release someone with this type of infection. Dad! I need you to follow the rules here. Quarantine is eight weeks in. Uh, this is a kind of a, a post, you know, Z apocalypse type of story where you've got people who are, you know, there's a zombie disease that's slowly infecting people. And it, it sounds like it's a really slow disease. It's a very slow progression of going from human to zombie. And of course, his daughter, Maggie, uh, the name of the film ends up getting uh, getting infected, and he stays by her side. Um, the mother is Jolie Richardson. Um, she figures in somehow. I'm not quite clear on the trailer, but it looks like this is just a really interesting kind of a horror character film with Schwarzenegger and uh, Abigail Breslin as the daughter slowly kind of changing. It looks like a really interesting kind of a frightening character study that really intrigues me. And the buzz on this, especially about Schwarzenegger's performance, is very exciting. And I know Schwarzenegger has kind of, you know, had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, stories going on in his personal life. Um, but now that he's kind of out of politics and getting back into film, 
I've got to say, this looks like a really exciting step in a direction that I'd love to see more of. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited about Maggie. It's going to be opening, uh, gosh, what did I see for the release dates? I know it's limited May 8th, and uh, I I don't know how wide it's going to expand, but I'm hoping it does have a a good expansion because it looks great, and I'm excited. What do you think? I am equally excited, and in fact, if if Mission Impossible had not dropped this week, this would have been the trailer that I jumped on, because, you know, I, I, we, we celebrate the canon, we celebrate the entire zombie uh, oeuvre, and uh, I, I just seeing him, seeing how great he looks in this film. Yeah. Uh, gets me just really excited for his uh, for for him taking on some of these uh, more interesting kind of alternative roles. Um, I did not like him in the that police thing that he did. The you know he was like the SWAT. Oh so, yeah, I missed that SWAT one. SWAT leader, right. um, and uh, I just wasn't crazy about that. The films that he's he's back to, you know, obviously we haven't seen uh, Terminator Genesis yet. I'm reserving judgment, but this one is is I, I'm more excited for Maggie than even Terminator Judgment in terms of the Schwarzenegger performance, um, uh, Terminator Genesis, than uh, because uh, he just he looks really really good. And Abigail Breslin, of course, the final sequence when her feet come out of the bed and it's a close up on her feet, is it? That foot just kind of enters the frame is really haunting, mm-hmm. uh, and um, so I'm I'm very excited about it. It it you know it's one of those if you if you kind of celebrate the catalog of zombie films, um, the, it it reminds me a lot of uh, the Last of Us, which was uh, uh, actually the game that they are making into a movie uh, that was a. Uh, Multi award winning game. You talked about that one on the show, the opening. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. We've talked about that one. It's a, it's a, a, a fantastic um, uh, game, and and it, it is that same sort of father daughter, or not father daughter. In that, that case, they're they're not related. They find each other and making their way through this world together, and so it has that a, a kind of vibe to it that I'm I'm really excited to see explored. Excellent. It's it's almost you know what it's almost like. It's almost like. Uh, what was the one with Will Smith that I like so much? I am Legend. I am Legend, but um, like a, a year earlier. So not <laughs> everybody is dead yet, and the right. daughter is still alive. Right, right. This is what it would have been like, and the dogs are still good. <laughs> <laughs> so Pete, yeah, where did you leave his body? Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? You can't, you know, no matter how hard you try. Mr. Haskell, what's the matter? Are you hurt? Are you hurt, Mr. Haskell? That's life. Whichever way you turn, fate sticks out a foot to trip you. Sure, three bucks, three hundred. It was a piece of cheese, a big blowhard. Listen, mister, don't try and tell me anything about Charlie Haskell. Remember, I knew him better than you did. I pounded the piano in there every night from eight until the place closed up. So when this drunk handed me a ten spot after a request, I couldn't get very excited. What was it, I asked myself? A piece of paper crawling with germs. Then I thought of something. Hello, Sue? This is Al. You're working as a hashlinger. Gee, honey, that's tough. Those guys out in Hollywood don't know the real thing when it's right in front of them. Look, I'll tell you what. You stay put out there, I'll come to you. I'll be there if I have to crawl. If I have to travel by pogo stick. Yeah. Bye. Ever done any hitchhiking? Yeah. 
breaks. It's not much fun, believe me. If only I had known what I was getting into that day in Arizona. Detour. Should have been a musical. Wouldn't this have been a great musical? <laughs> it can still be a great musical, Pete. Let's write it. <laughs> <laughs> this whole podcast is going to be a musical. Uh, film, uh, 1945, noir thriller. Stars Tom Neal and Anne Savage. Uh, this was um, uh, adapted by uh, Martin Goldsmith. Uh, based on go off of uh, his own novel. Yeah, have you read it? I haven't. I heard, according to Ulmer, that it's awful. <laughs> I actually I I bought it and I have not read it yet, but I've I have it. It's on my well. On my I'm Kindle. curious now. Yeah. Yes, I am also very curious. Uh, as you mentioned, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, who I mistakenly uh, referred to as Edward last week, like a fool. Oh God, amateur! What a boob! Rank! What a boob! <laughs> Uh, this is a very short film. It's um, sixty-eight brief minutes. Y- yes, not not quite a um, not quite a movie. More than a sitcom. It's kind of right in there. <laughs> uh, this is what what is uh, what what do we know as Poverty Row? Poverty Row was a slang term used in Hollywood from the late twenties through the mid fifties to refer to a variety of small and mostly short-lived B movie studios. Uh, thanks to Wikipedia, I'm able to tell you that. While many of them were on or near today's Gower Street in Hollywood, the term did not necessarily refer to any specific physical location, but was rather a figurative catch-all for low-budget films produced by these lesser-tier studios. And there were a lot of these in that time, and PRC was the company behind Detour. PRC, I know I looked up what that's... Producers Releasing Corporation. There you go, yes. See, this is what I do while you're doing your thing. That's right. <laughs> and they released this. They were one of the uh, the, the studios uh, in this so-called Poverty Row. And um, they, you know, they made some films. They were around from, it looks like, 39 to 47. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, they did The Devil Bat with Bella Lugosi and The Devil Bat's Daughter. And they did films like... Jungle Man and Nabunga, some jungle thrillers, and they did some mm-hmm. um, lone. They released some Lone Rider series, the Billy the Kid series, um, just a lot of stuff that is probably, um, you know, sadly has vanished from the uh, the the world. I mean, I, I think a lot of this stuff kind of just ended up getting lost, and people are. You know, some of this these film copies may be sitting in archives somewhere, and people just haven't come across them. But well, and I want to I want you to comment on that because I know you you have dug up some more about the kind of where this film sits. It is a it's it has fallen into the public domain, so you can you can find this in a lot of places. You can torrent it. You can uh, it's it's available in you know just about everywhere, and not sold or finished in many different uh, formats. I actually uh, watched it on uh, it's a it was released as a Criterion collection, and it's available in the Criterion section of Hulu Plus, which is really nice. Um, which is really strange because Criterion has never actually released this physically. Right. Right. So so because I was like, well, you said that last week. I'm like, detour, really? And I yeah. looked on their site, and it's nowhere to be found on their site. So it must be something that they just kind of 
pulled or they partnered with somebody who had a copy of it and then released it under their umbrella and over on their I don't, channel. Yeah, I don't know how they classify those films, but Detour is not alone. There are a number of films that are, are like their kind of bench strength films that they haven't actually released. And it is not, they didn't do a, it, it's not like a remastering. It didn't, there was no cleanup involved. It's a really messy print. Like if I was an Amazon reviewer, I would be having a field day in my <laughs> review. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it, it really is. It's it's not it's not great, but it's great that it's available, and it's a great you can find it. I, what was your um, what was your experience watching it? I watched a print from uh, was it Alpha Studios, I believe. That um, it, it's really not the greatest of prints. It was very or Alpha Video is what it was. Um, it was um, it was a pretty rough copy of it, unfortunately. That I it's but I've had it on DVD forever. I don't even remember when I got this, but it's been quite a while. And I know that there have been a few other copy, a few other DVD versions that have come around. Before that, I mean, um, the the problem with it is is this was one of those that uh, PRC just kind of you know dumped their catalog into the world of TV. And this was one of those films that just kind of played on TV for years. It was just kind of a B picture that people would catch on on random times. And so the the prints were never taken care of. And I mean, there were really poor 35 or even 16 millimeter films floating around. And um, there's a film collector, Wade Williams, who um, he saw it when he was young. And it, it's kind of just, he sounds like a very interesting guy, this Wade Williams. And, and it, you, he actually has his own website, wadewilliamscollection.com. And you can look at all the films that he has and TV shows that he's got and everything. Um, he sounds like a really interesting guy. He's got a lot of really interesting old sci-fi films. And, and he bought a copy of Detour. And apparently his is like, it sounds like the most pristine copy that's out there. And he did release it through, I believe, through um, through Image DVD, I think. And I, I haven't seen that copy, so I can't speak to it. But, um, but he sounds like a very um, tight-fisted um, person who doesn't like to release his stuff. He's never released the trailer. He has, a, I guess, a copy of the trailer for Detour. He's never released it. Um, I don't know if you had any luck finding a copy. I didn't look. No, you know it's so fascinating about it. I mean, I did. I I found a <clears throat> a trailer, but I think it's a it's a fan trailer mm. that has some nice snippets of dialogue. And and obviously, you by the time you're listening to us now, you will have heard that uh, a, a portion of it. So you get some dialogue, but it was not the official trailer. I couldn't find anywhere that it was an official trailer. Yeah, he he apparently has it, but he's very uh, just reading about. Uh, I mean, his site you know, of course, paints him very nicely. But if you read other DVD review sites, they talk about how this is this guy who uh, who won't let these DVDs out of his uh, out of his clutches. He doesn't want to. Um, he's afraid, I guess, knowing that it's a public domain film, that once he puts his pristine copy out there, that it's gone. And he really, you know, doesn't really have much way to make money off of it anymore. And so uh, I, it's never been released on Blu-ray um, I, you know, I, I, all the, I don't know if his version is streaming anywhere. So, you know, it's just one of these things and this is what happens. You get these, these kind of fights that happen once a movie goes into public domain and, and there are, um, you know, some great companies like Kino Video that will put the money behind a public domain film. Like they did a, a wonderful print of Nosferatu 
and um, but which is a you know in the public domain, but they put the money behind it because they wanted to release a really quality version of it on Blu-ray, and it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous print. I would love to see that happen with Detour. My print, I mean, there were some scenes. I mean, a lot of it was very scratchy. There's some that's just you got that that jitter from the uh, from the sprockets not lining up or being torn. Yeah. Uh, Lots of frame dropping. Yeah. Uh, characters just sort of suddenly move four or five feet across a room. Right. Exactly. <laughs> as they're walking. Yeah. Where a whole, like a whole chunk of film got uh, yeah. moved. And yeah. It's it's a shame that this film just wasn't treated well. And I, I like I said, I haven't seen his, so I don't know if his is any better. But um, I don't know. I, I'd love to see I'd love to see it taken care of and put out there. I okay, so I had not, uh, I had not seen it. Yeah, right. This was your right, first. This is time. my. This was my first time, and I, have, I have since watched it. I can say safely two and a half times. You gave me some specific viewing instructions. <laughs> you said watch the film, then read this. Sent me a link, and then watch it again. Right. And you know what I did? Exactly that. Excellent. I did what you tell because when you say jump, Andy, I say how high. That's that right. is how. That's our relationship. That's exactly right. I, so it. the link that you forward, <laughs> link that you forwarded me was the Ebert review, and I'd like to read the opening paragraph. Okay. Detour is a movie so filled with imperfections that it would not earn the director a passing grade in film school. This movie from Hollywood's Poverty Row, shot in six days, filled with technical errors and ham-handed narrative, starring a man who can only pout and a woman who can only sneer, should have faded from sight soon after it was released in 1945, and yet it lives on, haunting and creepy, an embodiment of the guilty soul of film noir. No one who has seen it has easily forgotten it. I disagree with parts of that okay and i have a feeling you and i disagree with different parts of that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what to make of detour this was as a, you know it's my first viewing um I, I in reading up on the film and in reading ebert's review it really cements kind of a strange consensus about the film that there is a lot of good stuff going on in an otherwise pretty terribly executed film it takes this whole b-movie vibe and in some places you know the b-movie vibe it comes with a lot of film noir you know you kind of you kind of get that but this one the diy-ness of this production that is so evident on screen in some places takes it right into ed wood territory oh yeah uh, you know and and i find that uh distracting and so i i still I, I don't think i quite know what to make of detour i i don't know what to make of it because i i didn't particularly in enjoy much of it i deeply enjoyed pieces of it uh, our protagonist, Al Roberts, played by Tom Neal, he's a whelp. He's just, he's, he's terrible, right? He's just, he has the best of intentions to go join his girlfriend, Sue, on the other side of the country. He's got no money to speak of, so he hitchhikes. I, I don't find him an interesting character. I, I, it's quite the opposite. He's a bore. He is tiresome. He is a drag. Uh, he's a buzzkill. There's like nothing interesting. In fact, at, at one point, this dark noir kind of brooding character, we actually go into the bathroom and watch him shave. <laughs> like he just you don't shave if you're a, the star of a noir film there's no shaving in noir there's no shaving in noir <laughs> so his his motivations are really puzzling to me so on the surface you know we're led to believe he's doing this good deed to go out to to hollywood his girlfriend wants to wants to find fame and so she walks out of their relationship 
in order to go be be famous in Hollywood. But, you know, really, what were her motivations in the first place? If I had been dating this guy like him, faced with the exciting possibility of fame and fortune in Hollywood, I would have left, too. Uh, he's He wasn't that compelling of a guy. So, I, you know, I'll leave it at that, because I think from there on, there are some really interesting elements, but I, I, I would like you to respond. Yeah, I, I think that it's a very interesting film, and I think there's a really interesting way that Ulmer chose to tell this story that, uh, I mean, I don't know. And I think some of it can be me choosing to read into it, but I love the, the, uh, there's something about the, just the complete cheap quality, the, the really poor, uh, you know, rear screen projection when he's driving in a car. The fact that the whole scene when he and his girlfriend Sue are walking at night through the streets of New York, <laughs> it's just, it's like they turn, they, they were in a, an empty studio and they turn on the fog machine and just filled, filled the street set because they couldn't actually, uh, you know, find a spot in LA that looked New York enough. And, you know, and suddenly we're on the set of the Thriller video. <laughs> There's so much smoke that it just, I mean, it's almost comical. And the, the almost? fact... Almost? Well, okay, it's 100% comical. <laughs> the fact that there's a, uh, you know, he, he, when he shot the scenes of him hopping in cars as he's hitchhiking, um, <laughs> he didn't do it the right direction. And he wanted, instead of going left to right which makes it look like people are going west to east, he wanted them going right to left, and so he flipped the film. And by doing so, the cars are on the wrong side of the road, and the driver's on the wrong side of the car, and he's getting in on the driver's side. And so it all looks completely backward. And there's there's so many uh, things like this through the film that just that just scream cheap production that, I mean, you wouldn't ever see a film that is five star rated in Robert Roger Ebert's great reviews or great movies, um, you know, selections that has all of these flaws. You'd never find a movie that's made today um, that is given this much special treatment, um, except for the fact that there is this dreamlike quality to the story that um, I always find leaves me very haunted uh, by the time I get to the the finish. There's something um, just really uh, very creepy about this this woman, this very uh, femme fatale woman that Anne Savage plays to a T. I think that she's just uh, very frightening in her role, and she does a, just a wonderful job as she uh, really just rips into him <laughs> you know, in, in, uh, in this relationship, I mean, she's, she's pretty much caught him, uh, you know, pretending to be this, this guy, you know, the, the driver has a heart attack. Yeah, we gotta, you yeah. we gotta step back because I think that, I, I think that the story of Charles Haskell, the real Charles Haskell, the driver who picks up, yeah. uh, Al Roberts is it, it, it sets, it sort of plants the seed for this relationship, uh, you know, that, that Ann Savage comes into the picture. And so that I think is really interesting because both, um, both Haskell and, and, uh, Vera, uh, are, are characters embodying sociopathy. Right. And they become these sort of sociopathic um, uh, satellites to Al Roberts. Uh, in the case of Haskell, uh, he's an extremely wealthy uh, gambler. It sounds like he's on his way to L.A. to pick up horse winnings or something. Right. From, um, and, and so he's very, very wealthy. And he 
picks up uh, Al on the road. And after a long period of silence, they start to learn a little bit about him. And he, he starts telling these stories with some relish about how he was in fights and, and cut another kid and put a kid's uh, eye tried out. To, <laughs> put a kid's eye out. That's what it was. He put a kid's eye out and he was, you know, sort of he talks about it with such like passion and such kind of relish. And and we, we noticed the, the deep scratches on his um on his uh, hand and we and he starts telling this really misogynistic story about how you know he he put this woman out he picked her up and she was ingracious and and so he put her out on the uh on the street any man would have done it uh he's not a not a good guy and then you know where you were you pick up he he has a heart attack on the road yeah and and so that's that's where that's where the first uh, sort of poor bit of judgment comes in on the part of Al Roberts. He knows he needs to get to L.A., and so he decides to uh, take on Haskell's identity. Right, right, because no one will believe that Haskell died. Everyone will think that he killed him. He And then if he tells the police and, and he does get away, he's going to end up broke and no, have no ride. So knowing that Haskell has a ton of money, he takes his identity and his money and his car and continues to L.A. And then he picks up this this beautiful hitchhiker, who seems, you know, all wonderful, but it happens to be the girl that Haskell had had the the tiff with, and uh, had had scratched him up, and she knows that this is not uh, Al's car, and you know she's got that very frightening moment where she sits up. It looks like she's sleeping in the passenger seat, and all of a sudden her eyes just open, and then she lifts her head up. And, and that whole, like, where'd you leave the body? Where'd you leave the owner of this car? The way that she just all of a sudden hits him with these lines, uh, I am always uh, just uh, taken aback by because she's so direct and, and pointed and barbed. And, uh, and there's just so much venom in everything that she says. I love Vera. I have such a great time watching her, uh, her character throughout this film because she just is this beautiful uh, representation representation of the femme fatale and then of course you know she is kind of controlling al but the thing that i love about this story is and and i really was picking up on it more this time is there's this real dreamlike quality to it and i mean like a lot of noirs it's being narrated to us by al um after the fact he's sitting in a, a a diner and we've got that great um, camera move as the camera kind of goes in on his face, all the lights in the restaurant dim, and you've got that kind of that light behind the gobo that shines up on his face as the narration begins, and we flash back to the story. Um, there's something to be said about a story that's narrated, and there have been great films out there that have the uh, good examples of the unreliable narrator. And I'm starting to feel like this is not just a, a sad sack who makes really poor decisions. I mean, posing as a dead man, hiding the body in the bushes. I mean, it's like the most absurd decision to make. Like, oh, this seems like the logical thing that I should do in order to just keep moving along. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, 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 it's noirish mentality. But at the same time, I'm starting to feel like, and again, I don't know if Ulmer was necessarily thinking this, but this is definitely my interpretation now, is that this is the narrator wanting us to believe that. And this is him really kind of painting this picture of, of I don't want people to think that I'm this uh, this killer. I'm going to paint it like 
I uh, that like he had a heart attack and and he's like selling it to himself as much as he's selling it to us. And the whole the whole story, I mean, even when you look at the flashback of him and Sue walking through New York, just the fact that it's so ethereal and everything, everything just screams dream to me. And it creates this this mood that takes this man down this journey, uh, or down this path that is a, just a very dark journey that uh, into really kind of the, the dark places in his soul that he doesn't necessarily want to go to. Well, and I'm I'm glad you said that because I think that's that's one of the things that keeps me watching after about minute thirty one, is that we have this this twist. You know, once we get into to Vera, you start to get this sense, particularly on the kind of the third watching, uh, you, you get this sense that she is a caricature from the uh, of a woman like she's someone who who can't possibly exist she is way way too uh just bipolar in her um in the way she interacts with him right she is she's happy and supportive about this plan she's encouraging that they're going to do something great and make a lot of money and then she's crazy angry and coming after him and his as you say his unreliable narrator the voice that we're hearing from him the sad sack voice in the bar is is this voice of can you believe i'm such a victim mm-hmm. well i find that really interesting because you know, that's the um, it's that kind of codependence that we were set up early in the film. I think it's so funny that we come back to this codependence theme after talking about it in Levy on Rose the, that, you know, we have his relationship with uh, Sue. Uh, it, it can't be good unless um, unless, you know, he can't be OK unless she's OK and she's not OK. And so he is trying very hard to rationalize their relationship together. But at this point, you know, once we once we see how he's interpreting his relationship with Vera, who knows what happened to Sue? Did she really go to L.A. or did she air quotes go to L.A.? Right. Who is the most dangerous character in this film? By the end of it, we have two people confirmed dead. Uh, at the at his hand, and yet, how accidental could it possibly have been? That's the piece that I think makes it really interesting. If if I could just get over the fact that I'm so not interested in his whelpishness, <laughs> he is he is very his sad sack uh, is played uh, so extreme, which I actually have really grown to love. I really enjoy <laughs> watching Tom Neal in this because. It's like one of the most pathetic film characters that I've seen. I mean, he's just, there's nothing about anything that works for this guy. And he's just, just so, so <laughs> glum about all of it. And I don't know, there's something that I just, uh, I kind of laugh about when I watch. And uh, so I, but I can see, I can see where you're coming from with him because he is, uh, he's, he really is this character that's just like, I mean, He's not that interesting, and then he goes to make some of the the worst decisions that a character could potentially make. How is that a character that you're interested in following? It's yeah. you know, you know, there's an there's an interesting thing, and this was something that you know that we had this conversation about who's the most dangerous person in the film. The, did you catch the way the heart attack happened? Uh, now I really am saying heart attack with air quotes. Well, so, yeah, it's it, it looks like he falls out of the door of the car, like he's sleeping. He falls out of the door of the car and hits his head on a rock. That's what yeah. it looks like to me. Yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like to me too. But 
and and then he goes and buries the body under some brush. But you know, how easy is it for us to interpret that as unreliable narrator stuff? Uh, when now we have his tale of what happened, yet we have evidence that he was hit over the head with a rock. Right, right. That, that makes that sequence, I think, more telling on second and third view. Yeah, I think it's really a very interesting uh, journey that this character takes. And I also think, I, I, I'm not, I haven't quite made the leap that maybe he also killed Sue. I think there's an interesting angle where maybe he maybe he had this relationship with sue and he thinks he wants to get back to that like good relationship but he really knows he's this scoundrel and this cad and this murderer and when he ends up with haskell and when he ends up with vera it's really you know he's in a relationship that is much more fitting for him i think um he he feels more at home in those relationships. I mean, the thing that's so interesting, once he's with Vera, it would be so easy to leave. There's no yeah. it's it's she's drunk all the time. And it I mean, I don't know. I, I think that he finds excuses to stay, but um it does feel like there's this sick relationship that they are actually forming and that he actually seems to prefer being in that sick relationship. Um, because that's kind of what he uh, prefers in his life. Right, right. I can. I, I mean, I, I can totally see that. I can totally see that. Um, she is, you know, if you talk about the one reason to see this movie, I think that's, you know, she, she is that reason. Vera's, um, or Anne Savage's, Vera is a fascinating character to watch, and it just, it really does get better every time I, I see her enter the frame she's just wonderfully talented in this film um and such an interesting uh person to watch her exchange at the uh, or her turnabout at the uh, car dealership when they're trying to sell uh haskell's car uh, i think is really great you know she's in there kind of they're trying to be the the haggling couple and and the lead up to uh to this sequence them talking in the car about this plan about how they need to they have to sell the car they have to make it look like they're haggling so that it's not too fast somebody will rat on them on the car uh but to watch her end up taking control of that scenario uh i i think was a really interesting exchange it was particularly nice to see a little bit of shakeup because this is from a production standpoint this film only has what three sets yeah very few uh, there's the nightclub there's the apartment um the dealership, the dealership, and then rear projection, pretty much driving in the car. Well, and there's the, the he he stops and stays at a place also. Oh, I guess that's true. There's that one room. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. Plus exteriors for a few exteriors, desert exteriors. Yeah. Right. So anyhow, there is this, there is a, a nice kind of play back and forth between them, uh, which I think takes on more interest as you see as you start to think about her as a manifestation of his relationship with kind of women mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and uh, as a manifestation of his memory uh, makes it more interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, it is, if you look at it on its surface, and this is what a lot of the reviews say, if you, you won't like the movie if you take it on its surface. I completely agree with that. This is a film where, I, and I'm curious to look at the Amazon reviews for this one, this is a film that... Uh, I think if if any of our listeners come to this and watch it 
and then listen to us talk about it, they're probably going to come to the show uh, completely irritated that they watched this abysmal movie. <laughs> and, but it is. It is really something that you it, – it, it uh, is more enjoyable, I think, having looked into it a little bit more. And I don't know. I mean, did you find that after – I mean, I didn't give you that much, just that one review. But after reading that and then watching it a second time, was did you find more appreciation with the story or more interest in it? Well, you know, more after us just talking about it, but I, I still, I mean, I think I'm one of those people that I think I'm not looking at it just on its surface. I think I hope our conversation is one that, that indicates that I'm not just taking it on its surface, and I'm still not entirely sure that I'm I'm going to be dipping back into this well uh, in the future. I think that I love what the intention of the film, I really do, which is why I want to go back and read the book. If, you know, awful or not, I'd really like to kind of understand where it came from, because I think there are some really interesting things going on on there but the execution of it is it gets in its own way it's a it's a film that trips over itself and and um uh, i can this this was the point i wanted to make earlier i can totally see why this film uh, is is popular in the circles of of the deepest film critics but didn't get any any production traffic and has fallen into public domain if this film had been really more broadly popular if this had been a Maltese Falcon, somebody would have taken ownership of it, right? Somebody would have, have made sure that this didn't end up, that the best print didn't just end up in, in you know, Wade's basement. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I think you're right. And I think, um, I, I think it, a lot of that, unfortunately, comes from its origins, coming from a, a studio that is on Poverty Row that did not really care at all about what it cranked out it just it, it looked at it as a way to make money cranked it out and then just as soon as it was done with it sold it off uh to the tv stations uh for money um it just shows that they never went into making any of these things with the intention of it being anything more the fact that it does have you know prc did crank out a few films that people still regard as as uh, classics, or at least films that are worth revisiting, I think you know says something about the people that they had working for them, and uh, it is a shame that that uh, you know the films, you know I I like I said like or like you like you said we haven't read the novel, but the people were there to make a story that if a big studio had taken this story. I'd be very curious to see what type of film it would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Now, have you seen the remake? They tried to do a remake. They didn't try. They, I mean, they did. They, they did a remake. It was actually... And, and it was... Wasn't the son of... Uh, uh, what's his name? Yeah. Tom, uh, In that same role? Tom... Yeah, Tom Neal. Tom Neal's son. Tom Neal Jr. was the... Uh, was the uh, was reprised his father's role, which I think is very interesting. And um, uh, Aaron Mc, Mc, McGrain played Sue, and then uh, Duke Howes played Charlie Haskell, and Lee Lavish played Vera. This was released in '92, um, I believe, and uh, you know, one of those films that I completely don't recall ever hearing about. But interestingly, Wade Williams was actually behind it. He loved Detour so much that he actually um, got this made. And uh, I hear it's just completely abysmal. And it's yeah. it's funny that a uh, a remake 
of the same story is looked upon as abysmal, but this one, with all of its uh, you know very poor production value, is actually regarded as kind of a, a noir classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but, uh, but so- well, but I do I do agree with Ebert to a certain extent that there is something to be said with these issues and how it ends up helping to kind of create this noirish mood. You know, like his last paragraph, do these limitations and stylistic transgressions hurt the film? No, they are the film. Detour is an example of material finding the appropriate form. Two bottom feeders from the swamps of pulp swim through the murk of low-budget noir and are caught gasping in Ulmer's net. They deserve one another. And I think there's, I think there is a truth to that, that and maybe this is why I've grown to really love this film and why, I, like I said last week, why I think I've, I may have watched this more than, than any other noir is because there's something in the, the cheapness of it that actually feels like it's, you know, it's that, it is that seediness. It almost represents that low end of what noir really is trying to say. And that's, it, it, just, it, it just kind of feels like it, it was born from the gutter. I can I can see that I can see how uh, I, I can see how you might um, I, I can see how you have gotten there with that film and and I think it's fair to say I'm not there yet. Sure. Um, I, I I think this film I I couldn't help but think this is one of those movies that I didn't think found its right form. I would much rather see it as a stage play, for example. You know, uh, there is such I I think there was and and maybe it's because I really had such a problem with with Neil. Um, there's there's such life and vibrance in Vera in her sociopathy that I just love, uh, and. Uh, you know that his he's he really it's not just that there's a dreamlike sense to the film he's in a trance <laughs> of the film and and i think that 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 is so distracting for me but I, I you know i think there there are a lot of layers to the film it's one that i would love to see on stage i would love to see it remade uh with with some broader intention to it and uh um, you know, a, a little bit more interest. You know, c- the cinematography of the film—it's—it's it's actually fascinating. Benjamin Klein is a, the cinematographer of the film. This—the—the the camera was—I I mean, this is—it might as well have been an episode of *I Love Lucy*. Like there was just there was no energy to it. It was—it was, it was uh, like there was certainly not the energy that we have already come to expect from uh, other films of the same genre at the same time. This was very clearly a six-day shoot. Uh, and yet but, Ben Klein uh, is is he's got 369 credits between uh, 1920 and 1972. I mean, this guy was a machine uh, in terms of uh, getting behind the, the camera. And I will say, for a six day shoot, there's actually more creativity in this film than you would ever expect. Like, I, I actually find there to be some interesting. Uh, moments that do kind of stand out more so than what you would see in like an I Love Lucy episode. I uh, like I mentioned the the interesting lighting game that they play when it goes into the voiceover. There's that really kind of disorienting shot that starts on when he's sitting in the cat in the diner. It starts on his face and then it 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 booms down to the the coffee mug, which seems like a giant coffee mug. Yeah. It like throws you and, and then it kind of it, it pans over and moves over to the jukebox. There's some really interesting movement. Likewise, when he kills Vera in the end, um, you've got that really fascinating, almost first person point of view camera perspective where it's like 
it's the camera shows her face, her strangled face on the bed. It goes out of focus and moves up to the the mirror or to the uh, the nightstand, and it focuses in on the on her hairbrush. It goes out of focus and it moves over to her shoes and it focuses on those. And it kind of keeps moving around, going in and out of focus. And for a film that was shot in six days, uh, yes, a lot of it was very kind of standard and not overly creative. But I actually think that they did find some ways to make it at least more interesting than it should have been. All right, I'll give you those. I'll give you those sequences, and I'll add one more to it, but I'm not officially changing my opinion. <laughs> when she picks up the phone and says she's going to call the cops, the camera stays right on her. And and I think what is a, a really interesting uh, uh, switcheroo, uh, she talks to the cops while her eyeline is straight at him. Uh, as he starts to struggle with her, uh, the camera doesn't change. Like they don't, they don't cut back to him. And the next cut is again from over his shoulder. His back is still to us, but it's now from outside of the room. Uh, and I find that such an interesting tussle. Um, that that is one that I'm that I'm I'm going to add to your list. Yeah. I'm still not that excited about it, but no, I mean I agree. I list. think a lot of it isn't that exciting, but I think there's more in it than yeah. you would expect for a six day film shoot. That does lend to this feeling of just kind of, you know, something being a little more dreamlike, a little more out of, something's just out of whack a little bit. I, I've i grown to really uh, appreciate all of that. The, uh, the final uh, assassination is so bizarre. <laughs> yes. She, uh, there is an, uh, there is another, they're, they're still in their tussle. She is super drunk. Uh, the phone, uh, the phone box is actually in the bedroom, and the phone itself has been out uh, in the living room, where the threatening police call happened. With the potentially the longest phone cord that I've ever seen, longest and most sturdy phone cord that you've ever seen. Yes. And he, uh, she says, oh, I'm going to grab the phone, and she takes the phone, and she somehow, as she's pirouetting to the bed, manages to really, really wrap the cord around her own neck mm-hmm. and body. And so there's still some cord hanging out under the door as she locks herself into the bedroom, preparing to call the police. He grabs the cord, as his dream would tell, he's trying to rip it out of the wall. Uh, but in fact, he grips it, and you see him, he's wrapped the cord around his hand so tightly as he pulls the cord under the uh, under the door, and it turns out the whole time he is strangling her as she is noosed up on the bed. Really uh, an intense way to go. <laughs> yes. And like you said, incredibly strange. Yeah. Yeah, which lends more credibility to this dream state sequence that that feels so loosely capitalized upon, but still, um, you know, it's it's more credible, you know, once you once you watch it two or three times, that that he really was the dangerous guy, and he is when when he talks or when we see him remember his experience actually killing her, it is with much more confidence than when he's doing something else in the film. Yeah. Um, so. I don't know, man. This is going to be one I'm going to have to puzzle on, I think, a little bit more. Well, and I'll tell you, I, I am not a five-star, you know, great movies, um, you know, in my own opinion of this film. I don't think it's a five-star great movie, but I do think there is so much going for it that I find it 
really watchable. Like, well, I, like yeah. I, it, it's like a it's like a bad movie that I just really love to watch. I mean, I, see, and I, I hate calling it a guilty pleasure. Like you could almost once upon a time have called this a guilty pleasure. But now so many critics are, you know, piping up about how great it is that uh, it that you can't really call it a guilty pleasure anymore. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that that's a fair, fair assessment. Um, I, I can I can see how how one would come to love this film. I think there are a lot of layers to it. I think that uh, Anne Savage is is really wonderful, um, and and I think it's going to be something interesting. I, I'm really looking forward to exploring the source material, even even as it is bad. If that gives me any more insight uh, to how this film how I should interpret this film. I'm, I'm open to it. I'm very curious. Um, I, you'll have to tell me what you think. Yeah. Uh, any other points you would like to, uh, like to bring up? I, I think that was pretty much it. I, I find it a very interesting film. There is, uh, for people who are interested in, in Ulmer, I, I mean, he's a very interesting director who did a lot of these really quick, uh, and cheap films, but he also, is known for some classics that, uh, you know, I think it'd be fun to talk about one day on the show. Just films that I, I haven't seen, but I feel guilty for not having seen them. Films like The Man from Planet X and Invaders from Mars and... Um, what about like The Black Cat? The Black Cat, um, right. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a lot of uh, stuff that... Uh, I mean, I, there's a great interview in, in um, Peter Bogdanovich's book, Who the Devil Made It?, where he actually didn't sat down and, and interviewed Ulmer um, and talked a lot about the beginnings of his career. And he is a person, I mean, you talk about these people who are around at the time of the beginning of the industry, and it's amazing how much stuff they worked on and that they're not even really credited for. I mean, he is all over the map. And he started out in, I think he was born in, in uh, the, uh, the Czech Republic. And was a was you know actually like oh, last week's Billy Wilder they ended up kind of coming over to the U.S. They actually had worked on um, I think a project called People on Sunday together actually. But um, much like Wilder, he came to the U.S. and he made just tons and tons of films. Like he was cranking these things out. He worked with uh, F.W. Murnau on Sunrise. He worked on. On the Gollum, he worked on. I mean, just looking at his list of films of, of that he worked on as whether it's production designer or helping with sets or you know, kind of uncredited co-director. It's crazy how much stuff that he actually was involved in, and yeah. it's it's exciting to hear stories from people who are around all of that. I think his mentality sometimes is very much um, just like PRCs, just there to kind of crank this sort of stuff out. Um, yeah. but it is a really interesting interview and I definitely recommend it for people who are interested in learning more about Ulmer. You got a, you got a link. Yeah, we can put a link. You got a link to put a link. Absolutely. Right. You know, there's one thing we didn't talk about, but since we talked about the Hayes code last week, uh, we should at least bring this up the very, very end of the film. Uh, you know, he's now, if you go by our revisionist logic, uh, he is now a murderer two times, uh, uh, over. And uh, because of the uh, motion picture code, uh, they couldn't. We couldn't see a character actually get away with murder. So the very final shot, very final sequence, is him once again walking down a dark street and being picked up by a police car, mm -hmm. uh, which he had already um, he had already foreshadowed 
would be the car that is going to going to eventually pick him up, um, which I thought was interesting. And again, you know, it, it lends even more credibility to this kind of, you know, he's the most dangerous person in this film. Yeah. Uh, so. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. a it's good, good thing to bring that up. I'm glad you did. Yeah. I live to serve. Really. <laughs> uh, I say we, uh, I say we rank it. No, let's talk numbers. Do you get, did you get anything? You know, the only thing I could find about this, I, I couldn't find anything as far as how much it made, but I did find um, just, there's some discrepancy about how much it actually cost to make. Um, the initial figures, according to, I believe, him and a lot of people involved, is that it was twenty mil- or $20,000. Um, very little money at the time. And that's about uh, two hundred, not quite $260,000 adjusted. Um, some people say it actually ended up going up to closer to $100,000, which would have been about $1.3 million. Um, so somewhere between uh, those two figures, that's where um, the production stands. And... Um, but that's all I could find. I couldn't find anything as far as um, how much it ended up grossing. I would love to know. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. Yeah. Um, but for now, I think we should rank it. Let's do it. All right. Head over to uh, flickchart.com slash the next reel, and um, you will see right there our stack ranking of our very favorite films. Uh, set up an account. Set up your very own account. Like us, friend us, partner with us, and let's see uh, see if our uh, our films match your favorite films. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Detour or Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I will agree with you. Um, it's funny how that one <laughs> keeps coming up every time. I know. Um, Detour or Taxi Driver? <laughs> your favorite movie. Really? Another really? very dark uh, character. I'm going to go with Taxi Driver. I, too, am going to go with Taxi Driver. Detour or Major League? I will actually go with Detour in this one. Really? Uh-huh. Um, all right. I'll give you Detour on this one. Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, detour or the Parallax View? Parallax View. Yeah, Parallax View. Detour or Prometheus? <laughs> I would do Detour. <laughs> Uh, uh, man i uh i was frustrated by prometheus that's why i'm going with detour because it's, this is a grudge vote it's a no because well maybe because prometheus <laughs> i've never been so angry at the mistakes made in a film it uh, is a grudge vote yes i guess it is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will agree with you on the premise of grudge. <laughs> okay. Uh, detour or The Bishop's Wife? I would do Detour. I, on this one, would do The Bishop's Wife. Well, you gave me one. I'll give you The Bishop's Wife. All right. Thank you. Oh, look at that. 149 out of 177. <laughs> out of 177? Is that what you said? Yep. Yeah, out of 177. Wow. All right. I'm okay. That honestly, that feels okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. This is a, this is a movie I think having seen I was I was coming into the conversation tonight. I was kind of ornery. <laughs> I was thinking, what the heck does Andy really love about this movie? And I am I am relieved to know two things. First of all, that there is a lot more going on in the film, you know, the more you see it, I think there is some more interesting stuff going on here. And it's certainly made better with the conversation. Uh, but two, 
that you are not uh, as gung ho as I as you were in my head version of Andy. <laughs> yes, no, it's not my head simple. version of Andy. You were you were off the charts. Yes, just just because I've seen it a lot doesn't mean that it's like my favorite noir <laughs> thing. But I, there is something about it that I I am curious. Uh, like you know, a year or two years from now, what will stick out about this film for you? Because this film. When I think of film noirs, this is one of I mean, one of the top films that always comes to my mind. The, just the look on Vera's face when she sits up in the car. There are moments like that in this film that just scream noir to me. And when I think of noir, this is one of the ones that jumps right up into the forefront. I, I believe that. I believe that, and I don't mean that sarcastically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I, this, is, this is good. Where do we go from here? We're going to uh, continue our uh, jaunt. We're going to actually take a detour down Scarlet Street next week. Fritz Lang's uh, wonderful noir. I'm more excited about this one. Have you seen this one? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's a fantastic film. It's really a fantastic film. So, there you have it. Uh, all right. Well, for now, I'm I'm gonna go to bed. All right, I gotta go bury a body in the desert. Mine comes from uh, a regular reviewer, goes by the name of Acute Observer. Aww. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's kind of a long um, thing, a long review. I'm going to skip some of it. Okay. The, first, the whole first paragraph is about the story. Uh, Vera and Al register as Mr. and Mrs. Charles Haskell. Quote, I'm always right, their conversation tells about their characters. They don't sell the car. They dine at a drive-in. Vera has big ideas. The monetary figures date this film. An argument results in more bad luck for Al. He leaves, but an unforeseen event occurs to end this story. A better script could improve this low-budget story. The idea of impersonation of a stranger was used in other films and stories of Vera was thrown out of Haskell's automobile. How is it possible that she would return to it and be ahead of it, going the <laughs> other direction? As <sighs> a two-star. That is pretty funny. Yeah. Probably another film-flipping problem. <laughs> right. What's yours? Um, I actually am going with a, uh, a different one than the one I was going to go with. Oh, good. Um, You're yeah. changing it up. I know. It's, it, this is a, a one-star by Femme Fally. Femme Fally? Femme Fally? I don't know. I'm not quite <laughs> sure who say it. Who says, ha ha! I had to respond to all the reviews saying that this movie is masterfully done. This is a great movie only because it's so incredibly terrible. It's funny, it's cliche, and it's definitely not great film noir. I once watched this movie in a college film class as the teacher's joke. I just wanted to straighten that out before I say that I still love this movie because of its obvious low-budget bad production and funny antics that are supposed to be dramatic, like when the two lovers are walking through the street and the director pans up at the street lamp and then down again at the couple about five times for dramatic effect. And it really just comes off as something that would happen in a spoof. If you're out for a good laugh, 
this is a great movie to give it. If you really want to watch the pinnacle of great film noir, watch Out of the Past or my personal favorite, Touch of Evil. Well, there's a point. There's there's a point to it, and I, I think it's pretty funny. I, I personally love the fact that their teacher showed it in film class as a joke. <laughs> oh, my. That is pretty funny. That is very funny. All right. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs>